Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. I like what Paul says in Romans 16, 19. He says, I would have you to be wise concerning that which is good and simple concerning that which is evil. I think it's a dangerous thing if we start studying 24-7 the occult and the dark arts so that we can learn everything there is to learn about demons and the dark side. It's very dangerous to get wrapped up in that field of study. But at the same time, we need to know our enemy's tactics. You know, a football team, Monday through Thursday, studies their opponent's tactics. They spend the week in preparation for the big game. They've done scouting reports on their opponent's offensive and defensive formations and the kind of plays they like to run. Now, may I say that by watching film and by running a few plays against the opponent's stand-ins in practice, we're not becoming experts in the other team's game plan, but we are learning enough so that we can make progress toward our goal. That's the idea behind the apostle's words, we're not ignorant of his devices. A military commander studies the tactics of his enemy, and so you and I should study the tactics of our enemy. And I want to do that this morning, God being our helper, by looking at four episodes or cases in the Old Testament in which people had a personal encounter with the devil. The devil is only mentioned in terms of his encounters with human beings four times in the Old Testament. And let's look at these. We could go to the New Testament, many places in the New Testament, to look at where he assaulted people, like Jesus told Peter, Satan has desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I want us to look at some precious remedies this morning by looking at these four Old Testament examples in which the devil attacked individuals. And I want us to learn something about his tactics, his devices, and I want us to see the remedy, the precious remedy that God has provided. And the first place we go this morning is to the third chapter of Genesis. Let's look at the case of Eve. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, that is to Eve, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat, and the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves aprons. And they hid from the Lord in the Garden of Eden. You know the story there. 
I think we can learn something about Satan's devices in this episode in our early human history. Satan attacks us in the area of our thinking, of our minds. He assaults our doctrinal understanding. One of his devices is to assault the mind. You know, that's exactly what the Apostle Paul says when he references this episode in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy, but I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that's in Christ. Then he goes on to talk about somebody who comes and preaches another Jesus. By the way, when somebody preaches false doctrine, that's one of the ways the serpent beguiles people's minds from the simplicity that's in Christ. You see, there's more to it than just a preacher delivering a message. The devil is using it to try to trip people up, just like he tripped Eve up. He seeks to beguile our minds. Now, the word beguile means what? To fool, to trick, to deceive. And the way that the devil assaults our understanding or our thinking is by targeting the mind via lies and deception. You know, the devil traffics in lies. Jesus said he was a liar from the beginning. He's the father of lies. And in this world, you have the truth and you have the lie. And God is the source of all truth. Jesus said, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You might ask today, Brother Goins, where can I find truth in this world? You can find it in this book, Genesis to Revelation. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. This is eternal truth, absolute truth. And it's not subject to change. One of the things about truth is it doesn't ever change. You know, error is constantly morphing. Error is constantly changing. It's in a state of flux. You know, the idea of evolution that is so popular in popular culture today. If you know anything about the controversy of Darwinism or evolution, you know that it has changed and morphed tremendously over the years. The old idea of man coming from monkey, that's very seldom talked about anymore. And I know it's still in certain public school textbooks, you know, the missing links, the Neanderthal man and Cro-Magnon man and Piltdown man and Australopithecus and all of these supposed missing links. And by the way, you might be interested to know that each of these have been discredited as frauds or hoaxes. What once was seen as a missing link, it is evident that man has manipulated the evidence in order to make it more than, you know, through plaster of Paris and baling wire and uh, bichromate of potash and uh, all sorts of different chemical processes, they have perpetrated a fraud on the American public. So they've had to change the narrative. And instead of gradual changes from single-celled organism to the complexity of human DNA and human beings, instead of gradual changes over millions of years, They've come up with the idea of punctuated equilibria, which is the idea that suddenly by quantum leaps that life has jumped into a new genus or species, you know, into a completely new species, 
so that amphibians have changed to mammals and mammals to the complexities of human beings. May I say that error is always changing, but truth is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And God's word can be trusted. You don't have to doubt the integrity of Holy Scripture. This revelation has been tested like silver in a furnace of earth seven times. That's what Psalm 12:6 says. The words of the Lord are pure words as silver tried in a furnace of earth seven times. What if you had a chunk of silver and you put it to the refiner's fire? And then it came through the fire and it was more pure than it was before. But what if you did that seven times? Seven times, don't you imagine that it would be 99.999999%, I mean, 100% pure silver. And he says, God's word has been put to the test over and again. My friends, the skeptics have beat upon it like a blacksmith beats with a hammer on the anvil. And the hammers have been broken and thrown to the side, but the anvil stands. It's still the same. You can't hardly destroy an anvil. The anvil of God's word has stood the test of time. My beloved, this book is truth. But the devil seeks to confuse people's minds. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says that the God of this world, little g, uses this fallen world system. The God of this world hath blinded people's minds, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ should shine unto them and they should be saved. I want to say today, my beloved, that our enemy seeks to confuse the issue and to blind people's minds. He is constantly trafficking in confusion. And if you spend all your time watching TV and reading magazine editorials and newspapers and listening to the talking pundits, the talking heads on TV, if you spend all your time in this world and you don't counter that with the word of God, may I say you're going to be deceived by the lie. Just like Eve was beguiled through the serpent's subtlety. He's very crafty. He's very subtle. He's a sneaky snake. And seldom does he appear with horns and a pitchfork. Somebody draws a picture of the devil as being some hideous creature. I dare say most of the time he presents himself as an angel of light. He's a counterfeiter. And therefore it behooves us to use discernment To prove all things and then hold fast to that which is good. To try the spirits to see whether they're of God. You say, well, Brother Mike, how do I put to the test the truth claims that I hear in this world? You can check it all by the word of God. Screen everything you hear and see and to which you're exposed by the timeless truths of this divine word. And by the way, that's the precious remedy against Satan's assaults on our minds, our doctrinal understanding. God has given a precious remedy against this device of lies and deception, and it's the Word of God. Do you remember when Jesus was tempted by the devil in the wilderness, Matthew chapter 4? He quoted the Word of God. He wielded the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, in battle against the devil. Do you remember what he said? It is written, it is written, it is written. By the way, all three citations... In Matthew 4, when Jesus said it is written, are taken from the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. And you and I may go to the book of Deuteronomy and find resources to steal us and to stabilize us against the devil's assaults on our minds. 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 8 says, be sober, be vigilant. 
That means don't just uh, think that life's a party, but be serious about life and watch, think. You know, somebody says, check your brain at the door when you come into church. There's nothing more dangerous. I know we want to feel good when we come to church. I sure do. I like my heart to be stirred. I enjoy these wonderful old hymns, and I like to hear a sermon that will touch my heart. But my friends, we're to love God not only with all of our hearts, but with all of our minds as well. Your mind matters. The Lord said in Psalm 32, 8, Be not as the horse or the mule whose mouth must be held with bit and bridle. Don't be like a, a dumb animal that has to be controlled by force and which have no understanding. He says you should be people who think God does not despise your minds, which he himself has made. We're to have our minds renewed, says Romans 12 too, by the word of God. And that's one of the benefits of church worship. It helps us to think straight again in a crooked world. Does your mind get crooked in this crooked world? Well, the Bible will straighten it out. There's nothing like a little Bible reading to clear up a week of watching television. May I say that's one of the benefits of coming to church, is it helps you to think again, to see things clearly again. How many times have I come into the house of God and sat under a gospel sermon and I left feeling better thinking, okay, I think I understand now how things are going in this world. Satan's assaults on our minds are remedied by the word of God. Peter says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, like a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour, whom resist steadfast in the faith. The faith, the truth, the body of revealed truth. When you and I have our loins girt about with truth, when we wield the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, I dare say, dear friends, that will help us to resist the devil's lies and deception. Now let's turn forward to the book of Job. We've looked at Eve. What are Satan's devices? He assaults our doctrinal understanding. Now in the book of Job, chapter 1, we see the second episode in which Satan encounters an individual in the Old Testament. On this occasion, Satan appears before the Lord, and he asks the question, Doth Job fear God for naught? That is, he's accusing Job of being a mercenary, you know, only serving God for the paycheck. A mercenary is somebody who works for hire, you know. And by the way, God's people ought to be good for nothing. You ever heard somebody say, he's good for nothing? That's a compliment, my friends. It means that you'll be good without having to be paid for it, you know. The kids say, if I tell the truth, will you give me a dollar? No, I want you to tell the truth without pay, you know. That's payment in its own right. I want you to be good for nothing. Good for nothing. Doth Job serve God for nothing? For naught? That's what he's asking. The devil is saying, Job is only serving you because look how easy he has it. You've blessed him. But if you take away all of the privileges and benefits that you've given to him, then he'll quit serving you. That's the devil's accusation. And God says, okay, you want to use Job as the rope in our tug of war, our cosmic tug of war? You, you want to see who wins? Then assault his possessions. The only thing I won't let you take away is his life. Notice even in this situation, God's sovereignty is on display. God 
sets the parameters and the boundaries just how far the devil can go. I'm so glad for the restraining providence of God. If God was not exercising a restraining providence on this world, how evil and wicked would it be? Sometimes it shocks me and it offends my sensibilities when I hear about some of the evil things that happen in this world. And I know I'm protected from an awful lot of information. It's much worse than even I know. My beloved, how comforting it is to know that God sets parameters and limits as to just how far evil can go in this world. The devil then unleashes his entire infernal arsenal against Job's life. And what you read about in the subsequent narrative here in Job chapter 1 and following is the destruction of everything that Job had. First, he loses his holdings, his assets, his cattle, his sheep, his oxen, his camels, all of his servants. Job's lost all of his investments in one fell swoop, and then his children all die. Not only has he lost his financial portfolio in one day, but now all ten of his children have been slain, have been killed in a freak accident. A storm blows the roof in on the house where they're all assembled, and they all die in one fell swoop. I can imagine that that was a terrible grief to Job. I can't even imagine. It's mind-boggling how it must have affected him. And then his health breaks down. His body breaks out with these oozing sores from head to toe. And he scrapes himself to try to get some relief while he sits in an ash heap. He scrapes himself with a piece of broken pottery. And then his wife tells him that he ought to just curse God and die. She turns against him. You know, you can deal with a whole bunch of problems in life as long as you have a companion that stands by your side. But when your companion turns their back on you, you feel to be very forlorn and bereaved of every creature comfort. And then his friends come and they accuse him of some error in his life. They say, Job, you've done something that you've hidden, you've covered it up, and justice is finally catching up with you. Job has lost it all. May I say this is an attack of the devil. And what we learn from this regarding Satan's devices is Satan assaults our feelings and emotions. You see, by taking away every crutch on which Job leans and depends, every privilege that he enjoys in life, the devil is targeting his heart. Now, he targeted Eve's mind but he's assaulting Job's heart. He's attacking him, not intellectually or doctrinally, but psychologically. One of the ways that the devil assaults you and me, my friends, is psychologically. He seeks to cause us to lose heart. He, he traffics not only in lies, but in doubt and discouragement. If he can get you feeling like there's no use, and therefore you ought to just give up, then he has accomplished a great deal. You probably heard the old story about the devil selling some of his tools. He had a lot of tools for sale. He's having a yard sale one day, and a fellow noticed as he looked at the different tools that he had, you know, he noticed one set off by itself in the back, and he said, what is that one? He said, oh, that's not for sale. He said, that is my favorite and most successful tool. He said, that's the tool of discouragement. He said, I can't bear to part with it. 
You know, if the devil can get you beaten down and feeling like there's no use and that your best days are behind you, if he can get you questioning everything that matters, and he does that, my friends, through using the pressures and problems of daily circumstances, adversities, just like in Job's case, Job could have easily lost heart. Who isn't prone to discouragement when it seems like everything that could go wrong in your life is going wrong? Have you ever been there? You get a letter in the mail that says your bank account is all out of whack. And you say, what? I thought it was all okay. What's happened? And you find out that somebody has, you know, hijacked your name and committed theft, identity theft. And you say, oh no, what a mess. And then after that, I mean, it's the next day, it seems like you get a phone call that a loved one is in the hospital and you say, oh no. Just when I was preoccupied with this, now another problem. And before you know it, my friends, then you're, somebody at work looks at you crossways. Maybe you get word that the company's thinking about cutting back because of uh, financial problems and uh, you might be let go. And now you're worried about that. And then you have crosswords with your husband or your wife. And then before you know it, my friends, you've received news that your uh, loved one over several states away has passed away and now you need to prepare for a funeral and make travel arrangements and then the doctor tells you you've got some something going on we're going to have to run some tests and you say I can't take anymore has that ever happened in a person's life it's happened in many of your lives hasn't it it seems like when trouble comes when it rains it what it pours <laughs> and you say preacher I just I can't take another straw you know, the camels can't bear even one more straw flicked on top of his back. It's the straw that broke the camel's back. It's the last straw. I can't take any more. Well, that's how the devil uses our circumstances to assault us in our feelings and emotions. We get discouraged. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, when he had this thorn in the flesh, whatever it was, it must have been tremendously painful. He calls it a thorn. Probably some physical ailment, uh, illness. He calls it a thorn in the flesh, in his body. Something physical or physiological. Whatever it was. He doesn't identify it, but he tells us he had a medical problem that was painful and relentless. And he prayed three times. He said, for this thing I besought the Lord. And that word besought is a stronger word than just I casually asked him. It means to plead, to beg he wrestled with God in prayer. He said, Lord, I just can't take this. Please take it away. Three times, just like Jesus prayed three times in the Garden of Gethsemane, Paul prayed thrice that God would remove it. And he says that God did not answer the prayer as Paul wanted him to, but he did supply Paul's needs. And he says, this thorn in the flesh was given to me to keep me humble, lest I should be exalted above measure. You see, he had seen things when he was caught up to the third heaven that were unlawful to be uttered. He had had a spiritual experience that was very unusual, and it could have easily gone to his head and made him proud. But Paul says, God gave me something to keep me humble, lest I should be exalted above measure. But he said, the devil was using it. He says, that thorn in the flesh was the messenger of Satan. To buffet me. And what he means by that is God had given it to me to keep me humble, but the devil was capitalizing on my infirmities to tempt me to think hard thoughts about God. He was sitting on my shoulder, whispering in my ear, If God really loved you, 
He wouldn't let you go through this. And may I say the devil does that to you and me. He traffics in discouragement just like he did with Job. What is the remedy to counter the enemy's use of psychological warfare? I believe that God is faithful to sustain his children by giving them special grace to strengthen and sustain them. And that's what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 when Paul says the messenger of Satan to buffet me. He says, God responded, my grace is sufficient for thee. For my strength is made perfect in your weakness. Paul responds and says, most gladly therefore, I'll rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For when I am weak, then am I strong. Do you know what's happening here? God is giving divine resources, grace for living, to sustain his child during the midst of their adversities. And I want to tell you, dear friends, a Christian who's been through a number of problems in his or her life, and yet they still are sweet-spirited and remain faithful these many years later, and they are continuing to have a wonderful testimony to the glory of God, that is due to nothing but the supernatural grace of God. Somebody says, Brother Goins, how have you survived all that you've been through for the past three score years? How have you survived? And it's nothing compared to what some of you have been through. But I'll tell you how I've survived, my friends. The same grace that saved me from a devil's hell and made me a child of God has sustained me and kept me to this present hour. Nothing but the grace of God. Nothing but his sovereign mercy. That's what James chapter 5 verse 11 means when it says you have heard of the patience of Job. How could Job persevere? That word patience means endurance, perseverance, keep on keeping on. You see how Job just, through the midst of all of his losses and crosses, he said, the Lord gave, the Lord took away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. (laughs) That's triumphant faith, my beloved. How do you account for that kind of patience? That kind of stick-to-itiveness? Nothing but supernatural grace. You've heard of the patience of Job and you've seen the end of the Lord. You know the end of the story, don't you? You know the benefit we have when we read Job's case is different than what he had. You and I can look at it and say, oh, Job, you can take it. Do you know how we know that? Because we're looking at it from this side, right? We're looking at it after the fact. We know how it all ended. You've seen the end of the Lord. Job was going through it. He didn't know how it was going to (laughs) end, right? But you see, faith means that I trust a sovereign God. I know he's a gracious God. He's very merciful. He's very pitiful. That means that God's mercy and his grace are going to triumph in the end. And may I say, whatever you're going through right now, my beloved, I'll tell you how it's all going to end up. You're going to be okay. You're going to be safe at last when it's all over. Did you know that? My beloved, you have a bright future ahead of you. I can tell you that. You say, well, I'm in the midst of the fray right now. I don't know how it's going to end up. Yes, you do, my beloved, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And his grace is sufficient for you. Don't you love that wonderful truth that God's grace is enough for me? I don't think I can make it, Brother Mike. I'm only 50 years old, and if I live to be 70, I don't think I can make it. Who knows what's in store for me? God does, and His grace will be sufficient for you. Every day, He'll carry you. Isn't that wonderful to know? 
you know, we want to have a whole stock of grace in supply. We want to have a storage room filled with it. We want to rent, you know, a storage facility and store grace so that we can have it when the time comes. And God says, I want you to live a day at a time, a step at a time, a day at a time. You depend on me to take care of you today. And my friends, when you get to the end of the way, do you know what you'll be able to say? This will be my song through endless ages. Jesus led me all the way. Every step of the way, every day, his grace was sufficient. That means it's adequate. I'm not adequate, but his grace is. So Satan assaults our doctrinal understanding. We need to stay in God's word as the remedy against that device. He assaults our feelings and emotions. He gets us discouraged and full of doubts and fears through the circumstances and adversities of life. We need, my friends, to appropriate God's sufficient grace for he's given us grace for living. That'll help you to be patient because the end of the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. Then let's go real quickly. The time is about to beat us to 1 Chronicles 21 verse 1. We read, And Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David to number Israel. Here's the third of four occasions in the Old Testament where people were directly assaulted by the devil. David is provoked or tempted to number Israel. And do you know what he's doing here? He's the king. He's beginning to take comfort in how many troops he has. The purpose of taking a census of your people is to find comfort in numbers. There's, somebody says there's strength in numbers. Do you know where our strength should be? Not in the numbers around us, but in the God who rules over us. David has lost sight of God. Here's one of the devices of the devil. He assaults our focus. His goal is to distract us, to take our eyes off of our God, and to tempt us to become preoccupied with other people and the circumstances of this life. In other words, if he can get you to lose your vertical focus for a horizontal focus, like Peter on the water, as long as he looked at Jesus, he could do the impossible. But when he saw the winds and waves boisterous around him, he lost his vertical focus and he assumed a horizontal focus. That's one of the devil's devices, his tactics. He assaults our minds. He assaults our feelings and emotions. He assaults our eyes, our focus. He tries to distract us from the Lord and cause us to take comfort in the numbers of people around us. And God judged David on this occasion. Joab, who's not a picture of godliness at all, told David when he said, go number Israel. Joab said, I don't think that's a good idea. Joab said, the Lord make his people a hundred times so many more as there be. But my Lord the King, are they not all my Lord's servants? Don't worry about how many. Don't count noses. David... Don't cause a trespass to Israel. Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab, his general. The king said, no, I told you to number them. I want you to take a census. And uh, Joab summed the number of the people and God sent a pestilence. You know what a pestilence is? It's a disease, a virus. He sent a pestilence that killed 70,000 of the people of Israel. And David said, thy servant hath sinned, but Lord, what have these people done? You remember that's the story where David says, when he's offered three options, you know, you can settle for this many years of uh, the sword or this many years of a famine. Or David says, let me fall into the hands of the Lord and not into the hands of man. For with the Lord there is mercy. 
David said, I'd rather fall into God's hands and let him deal with me than to be at the mercy of the public. (laughs) I certainly understand what he means. So Satan assaults our minds, our hearts, our eyes, our focus. This is the way he works. If he can get you to live by sight instead of living by faith, my friends, he's all too happy for that. You say, well, Brother Mike, how can I counter the devil's effort? What is the precious remedy against this attack? The spiritual disciplines of prayer and public worship and Christian fellowship and Bible reading, the church. In other words, my beloved, James 4, 6 says it like this, draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. In other words, the best way to counter Satan's temptation to lose focus is to stay in the Word, come to church, spend time in prayer, engage in public worship, fellowship with other believers when you and I draw nigh to God. The closer you are to God, the easier it is to stand against the devil's temptations. Draw nigh to God, he'll draw nigh to you. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. You say, Brother Mike, I just can't keep the devil away. You can the more you're in church, the more you're in the Word. You see, these are spiritual resources, the disciplines of Bible intake and personal prayer. How much time have you been praying? Have you been spending time daily in prayer? My beloved, you ought to start every day on your knees in prayer to God. You say, well, I don't know what to say. Just say, Lord, here I am. You've been so good to me. You've blessed me so, and I'm unworthy of it. And Lord, I need your help today. So please guide me. Please take care of my loved ones. My arms aren't big enough to wrap around all of them, but yours are. So Lord, I leave them in your hands. I ask you to watch over my children and grandchildren. And Lord, these problems in our country, I don't know what needs to be done, but you do. Lord, please move and protect the church. And Lord, help your people. And thank you for your love. Spend every morning a few moments, my beloved, in prayer to God. And then throughout the day, don't forget to send up those little arrow prayers toward heaven like Nehemiah did when the king said, why why are you sad? He said, so I made my prayer to God. And then he answered. He just said, Lord, please help me to say it right. Never forget, my friends, to pray without ceasing. Walk with God. Be around God's people. These are resources God has given you. And it will help you to keep your focus on Him when the devil tempts you to start looking at the people around you. Finally this morning, Zechariah chapter 3. Joshua the high priest. And he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. Here's occasion number four in the Old Testament where Satan assaults an individual. And we're learning his devices. We learn from Eve that he assaults our doctrinal understanding. He targets the mind. We learn from Job he uses the circumstances of life, the adversities of life to target our feelings and emotions and to get us discouraged. We learned from David that he Assaults our focus. His goal is to distract us. And therefore we need to be like a horse at the Kentucky Derby with blinders on our eyes and have a solid focus on the Lord by using His Word and prayer and the fellowship of the saints and the worship of the church to draw nigh to God. 
and therefore we will resist the devil. Joshua the high priest in Zechariah chapter 3 teaches us that Satan targets your conscience with guilt. He stood at Joshua's right hand to resist him. Now what you have here in Zechariah 3 is a court scene in which the judge is the angel of the Lord. He showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. So the judge on the bench is the Lord. And Joshua, this isn't the Joshua that came into the promise. This is Joshua the high priest. He's standing before the angel of the Lord. So Joshua's a religious man, a high priest. And you expect the religious men or people to be holy and righteous, right? But notice it says that he was clothed, verse 3. Now Joshua's clothed with filthy garments. You know, the priest's garments were to be linen and pure and clean. The priest's garments, my friends, bespoke their important role of ministry and their holiness. Joshua's standing in soiled clothes. You know, I've been to church a few times with a shirt or a tie that were not clean. I am notorious for spilling coffee on my shirt. And whenever I'd get up and preach with a spot on my shirt, you know, I'd always kind of try to keep my tie bent over like that so it would cover it because I didn't want people to see that my clothes were dirty. We want to look our best. Can you imagine appearing before the president or the governor or the mayor in dirty clothes? If you're going to court, you need to dress up, right? Joshua the high priest, you expect him to be clothed in holy array. Instead, on his court date, he's clothed in filthy garments. And the prosecuting attorney, Satan, who's standing at his right hand to resist him, if you look in the margin of a good Bible, that will say to prosecute him. He's standing there to accuse Joshua, saying, look, he's not worthy. Look how this religious man is not even holy. I want you to notice what the Lord said to Satan. The judge throws the prosecutor out of the courtroom. The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan. Even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem. Notice, sovereign election. The Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? Redeeming grace. Joshua is a priest, but he's also a sinner. He deserves fire, judgment, but I've plucked him out. I've reached my own hand into the fire and plucked him out and rescued him from judgment. And I've clothed him with a change of raiment. May I say the devil assaults our consciences with guilt for past sins. But the remedy is the precious, glorious gospel that proclaims the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. Isn't it wonderful to know the, the gospel of grace that says he took your place and his righteousness was credited to your account. Your filthy garments have been taken by him. He wore your rags of poverty so that you might wear his robes of righteousness. Romans 1.16 says, I'm not ashamed of that gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation. To everyone that believes. Now it's not the power of God to a dead sinner. Only to the child of grace. To the believer. Not to the unbeliever. But he says, for therein, in the gospel, is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. This gospel, my beloved, tells us that Jesus took our place. Our sins were charged against him. His perfect righteousness and obedience has been credited to us. 
And therefore, we can overcome the devil, like Revelation 12, 11 says, by the blood of the Lamb. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. And by the word of their testimony, the glorious gospel, when we hear the gospel message that tells us about the objective fact of Christ's redeeming blood, his justifying grace, we can overcome the devil's assaults on the conscience, saying, you don't deserve any blessings. You're a guilty sinner. You say, yes, I used to be, but grace has cleaned me up. Isn't that what Romans 8.33 says? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. Yea, rather, that is risen again, who's even at the right hand of God. We are not ignorant of the devil's devices. And I want to leave you with one more precious remedy. May I say, just as Jesus told Peter, Satan has desired to have you that he might sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee. I want to remind you today, we have a great high priest in heaven. We're back to Hebrews, aren't we? Our great high priest in heaven interceding for us right now when the enemy attacks us, praying for you. May we use the resources he's given us, these precious remedies against Satan's devices and trust in one who never ceases to make intercession for us. All the way my Savior leads me, what have I to ask beside? Can I doubt his tender mercy, who through life has been my guide? Heavenly peace, divine his comfort, here by faith in him to dwell. For I know whate'er befall me, Jesus doeth all. Jesus led me all the way.